The following is a hoop ball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. I'm going to try not to make a perfect habit of this, but good evening, everyone. Welcome to Fantasy NBA Today, a hoop ball presentation. I know that's a couple days in a row that we've gone a little bit later in the day than planned, but as mentioned before, the release times on these episodes will be bouncing around. And I've got to think that when the season is in full swing, we want to try to get these things out as early as humanly possible because there's so much changing every day. But right now, if ever there were a time where the release moment of a podcast is somewhat unimportant, this would be it. There was no news out of the NBA over the last 24 hours. The only thing that happened over the weekend that we didn't mention on yesterday's show was Adam Silver saying on a TNT interview that they would not be making any decisions until at least May 1st, which makes a lot of sense. By all accounts, on the, the COVID front... There are many different states, I mean this in a multiple, couple different meanings there, of disease progression. You've got some states where things are a little bit farther along. New York, obviously. California is a bit farther along. And a lot of it has to do with when these states put into their various measures. But the NBA has to react to all of that. So you've got some states like... Georgia, for instance, that just put into measures a couple days ago. That's where the Hawks are at. So you've got players, you've got teams located in different places that have different measures and those measures put into place at different times. And so you just have to wait it out. That's the prudent choice. As per usual, Adam Silver has uh, proven himself to be a pretty reasonable man. And I think you'll see a lot of sports kind of follow the NBA's lead. Wisely so, by the way. The NBA gets a lot of stuff right on the what overarching, broad stroke, big picture decision should we make in front. They make a, a lot of good moves in that direction. So, for our purposes, while we've discussed on this podcast a few times what we should be doing with our fantasy leagues, I think we have to wait and make our final call when the league makes its call. That's what I would recommend. As always, there's no one-size-fits-all answer. If your leagues, if you want them to be done, you can have them be done. That's fine. But I would recommend waiting. I just don't see any massive downside to waiting. What's the downside? We probably know the answer to this. The, the likely answer is that if you get any regular season games, it's going to be a handful It's doubtful there's going to be enough time to jam in all five remaining weeks, and then you're probably going to figure out some way, I think the NBA will, to have playoffs. In front of fans, doubtful, but somewhere. You can convince players to quarantine themselves away from friends and family for six weeks. Convincing them to do it for three months is a taller order. And it's fewer players and fewer teams if you just wipe out the regular season. So we probably know what's going to happen But the NBA doesn't know for sure. We don't know for sure. And so the downside to waiting is everybody just has to wait a little bit. There really are no other big notes. 
I know there's the argument, well, everybody could use what if you were, you know, what if you, the averages in your Roto League show you to be the second place team and that would net you 250 bucks. And yeah, absolutely. There, there are people that could really use those 250 bucks right now. And if you're in one of those positions, maybe you could talk to your commissioner about giving you your buy-in back temporarily. If you're in a, if you're in a potential money-making position in your league, maybe you get your buy-in back. So at least you're back where you're started. And then if things ultimately do get canceled, you get your profits when the league makes that decision. You could do that with, you know, top two teams or something like that. But I mean, we're talking about a bit of a stretch here. Because we really don't know for sure. And so I continue to maintain chill. Plus, we want to make sure that we're getting this right. Whatever decisions we make on the the league wrap-up, we want to make sure we're getting it right. I read a thread on Twitter today. I want to do one more little segment here on the virus stuff. And One thing that's been kicking around in my head, and it's really just the math of all of this, is how... You hear, the, you hear the phrase flatten the curve. You, you understand mostly, I think, most of us do what this means. You want to try to make it so that the infections happen more slowly over a much longer period of time so it doesn't overwhelm the healthcare system. The thing that's been sort of, and I think this has actually been stressing me out more than I, than I was letting on even inside my own head, is I think we all could use a little bit of good news every once in a while. And there hasn't been much of it since March 11th. There has not been much good news. Largely, a lot of places taking measures too late. A lot of reasons to be downtrodden. So the thing that I was attempting to kind of bury my brain in was just math. And we've done this before on the podcast, just kind of tracing what this all means. We traced it when we were talking about the uh, positive cases coming out of the NBA, where, as you guys may recall, on March 11th, the NBA season was suspended. We got reports of other Jazz players testing positive, well, one, just a day or two later. And then we got that wave about five or six days after that of other people, players and staff across the NBA, testing positive. And that was sort of it. I lobbed out the idea that maybe we'd see one more wave of positive tests coming out in public, but my guess is... There were probably positive tests, but the league didn't feel the need to release them because it was done maybe more of an individual basis as opposed to team-wide testing. So did they happen? Maybe. We don't know. And it sort of doesn't really matter. The reason we were doing our little math game back then was to say, okay, well, we know that there's about a five-day incubation on this, this disease. And at the time, there was about a three- to five-day testing lag where someone might get tested when they were either showing symptoms or for the NBA, it was they just tested full teams that they felt like had been exposed to, well, Rudy Gobert was the big one at that point. And so we were getting results on that around the 18th, 19th of March, eight, nine days after the suspension. And I saw everybody on Twitter say, well, it's all over now, folks. And I was like, well, actually, this is just the basically the cases that were happening when the league was suspended. Like, there should have been... A second wave, three, five, six, seven days later, of people that were just getting infected around the time the league was suspended. Now, those are the ones we didn't hear about. I do think they probably occurred. Those, some of those people are probably still sick right now, but we just haven't heard about it. 
Now, the reason I like to play this math game is for my own, a, a small sense of calm. So I hope this will do the same thing for you guys. I did a little bit of research earlier today, and my hope was I could find something to answer the question in my head of, for, for those of us in California, I'll use, I'll use California as the example because that's where we are, the stay-at-home order was put into effect here, I believe it was on the 16th of March. So that was, eh, maybe it was the 18th. Either way, it was a, b about three weeks ago, give or take a day or two. So we're around 20 days or so since the stay-at-home order was put in place in California. By that time, just based on this sort of simple addition of it takes about five days for somebody to be infected, and then if they show symptoms, maybe another two or three days after that, Maybe a little bit more. Let's we'll we'll go liberal with the numbers here. Let's say the symptoms that cause these people to go get tested take another four or five days. So we're around ten now, and then maybe the testing takes another three or five days. So you know results on the tests about two weeks after somebody's first exposure. But if indeed the social distancing, the stay at home in California was put into place three weeks ago, then the people interacting with one another should have largely come to a close at that point or within a few days of that point. And as we learned from our previous little math game, those positive tests should be coming around 10 days after exposure. Maybe a little more than that, say two weeks. So we're right around the time now, basically today, or maybe early this week would be the better, more broad way to put it, about three weeks out from measures being put in place, that we should start to see more adjustments on how these tests are, are coming back. The curve stuff, the flattening of the curve. But then I was looking at numbers and I was like, why is it that, and, and I'm sure you guys have heard it all too, because this is the thing that keeps making my stomach drop every time I see this announcement. The surge is yet to come. And in a lot of places... That makes sense. You know, places that put into the, the stay-at-home rules within the last week or so. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. We've already, because people continuing to be exposed, that's just going to keep happening. They're, the curve is going to be exponential for them for at least another two weeks or something to that effect. But we're hearing it in California as well, and we're already three weeks out from the stay-at-home order. So the reason that, I, and this is what I came up with with some research today, and, and hopefully this gives you guys a little bit of solace as well. Uh, the, the average time of incubation is about five days, and then the average time after that to hospitalization is about another week to week and a half. The average time from that to, and then hopefully we don't see, but I don't want to get too much into the mortality side because this is not supposed to be a huge downer of a podcast, is an additional week or a little bit more. And I think what they're saying is that from start to finish, it's about 23 days. So if you're looking to set your countdown timer, and that's why I brought this all up, if you're looking to set your countdown timer to seeing good news, Start your clock about 23 days from when your state put into effect rules that should be trimming down the spread of this virus. So for those of you listening here in California, I know there are a lot of you here that are, are with me on uh, 
in sunny California with our with our gorgeous air, with nobody driving out here. Uh, we're right on the cusp of it. I still can't fully understand why the surge is supposed to be four or five weeks out, but anyway, we'll uh, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. But uh, if indeed 23 days is sort of the beginning to end of all this, and if indeed the measures are working, you should start to see the sort of the equilibrium start to tip back the other way. Now, people are, people are getting infected faster than they're getting better, so that's why you see kind of that, the overflow in hospitals, because someone goes in, it might take them a week to actually get better, but that means that there's six more days where more people are coming in before that guy comes out. So, you know, the, the equilibrium coming in is higher than that going out, and, and so it'll be a little bit beyond even the 23 days when you start to see that come back the other way. But that, to me... It gave me some measure of solace. At least it started a clock because it's all very nebulous without these types of numbers and hopefully you guys can use that as well because at least on my end, I was looking for some sort of good news and it's good to know that you just, it's not even worth digging until you get about three weeks out from your state's stay-at-home order. We're in post-mortem season here on Fantasy NBA Today and I may need to come up with another name for that because, well... There is real-life mortem happening right now. And Hoopball's done a nice job of it. They've called it the season so far, since it's not really over yet. Maybe. Yesterday, we profiled the Lakers, which were basically the easiest team in the entire NBA to profile. And today, we'll do arguably the second easiest team to profile in the entire NBA, and that's the Los Angeles Clippers. The Clippers were closer, though, to having more fantasy players of relevance. So it's not quite as cut and dry. The Lakers were two players and nothing else. The Clippers had two top guys. But then there were three, four, five dudes that were hovering around the periphery for, well, the entire season, really. And they even added one mid-year who, you know, petered off once he joined the Clippers. His role wasn't quite the same, and that was Marcus Morris. But let's go through these players one by one. And then we'll take our lessons learned from the Clippers. Kawhi Leonard, number three in the NBA by average in nine category leagues. Just a brilliant campaign. 27 points, two three-pointers, seven boards, five assists, almost two steals, .6 blocks, 47% from the field, which is actually low for him on 20 shots a game, 89% at the free throw line on seven tries per game. Number three, I repeat, in nine-category formats. A fantastic campaign. He played in 51 games on the season. Only had one injury that derailed him besides the traditional uh, load management. And so because of all of that, even by totals on the year, he was number six. 51 games was low for somebody in the first round. And by totals, he actually had the lowest number of games played of anyone inside the top 15. Actually, wasn't really anybody all that close to him. Anthony Davis was at 55, and he's number two by totals. Kawhi, 51. Beal, 57. Just looking at players in the 50s. Those are the only ones. Uh, sorry, Jason Tatum was 59. But 51, certainly the lowest number. So I, I don't want to minimize the, the notion that missing games isn't a factor because if he was number three on a per-game basis and he was playing every day, he would have been running away with that number three mark in totals. 
Like, there wouldn't have been anybody remotely close to him. Damian Lillard is number three by totals. Kawhi Leonard, had he played Lillard's 58 games, he would have been out in front of him by quite a bit, a substantial margin. Still would have been well behind Harden and Anthony Davis, but it would have been a runaway number three. As it stands, he was number six, and he sort of clumped in there with Chris Paul, Hassan Whiteside, LeBron, Jokic, Dame. Mm, you could go as, maybe as far as Tatum, but I don't. I, I think I'd put him one half tier below. What is the lesson to take away from Kawhi Leonard's season? What can we pull from this? Well, he ended up having a really large role. Those of us that drafted him, knowing Paul George was going to miss time, was a good decision. George ended up missing additional time. But what Kawhi did this year wasn't really that large of a divergence from seasons past. The big changeup for him was the assists. From a career mark of 2.7 and a previous career high of 3.5, he was at 5 this year. Dropping, mind you, since the Clippers added Reggie Jackson and Paul George got healthy. He didn't need to be as high of an assist guy, but he was up there. Four or five most games, even when the team was healthy. He was just higher than that when he was kind of a one-man gang for a while. He and Lou Williams were doing almost all the scoring. Montrez Harrell as well. There aren't a ton of lessons to take away from Kawhi Leonard's season, other than the notion that whatever weird reports we get coming out as the season approaches, you can probably throw them out the window. Because once again this year, we heard that Kawhi was going to be playing in more games. Uh, Maybe he's thinking about playing in the back-to-backs. No, he's not going to play in back-to-backs. It's just not happening. Make your assessments knowing he's going to sit out at least one half of the back-to-backs. And then beyond that, you hope that the Clippers are able to keep him in strong enough game shape that he doesn't miss other games. There's always going to be that little tinge of fear over Kawhi Leonard, and and it's normal. It's not wrong to be a little bit afraid of him. The fact that he had a really good season comes from this, we sort of weighed all the factors together. Number one, one of the big factors we weighed was that he was getting drafted later than expected. He just wasn't going that early in most drafts. Right? We talked about this on Friday. If he was getting drafted around 7, we were going to take him, but he was getting drafted around 11. He was going on the turn... And so you look at him, and then last year is a good barometer for this. Last season in Toronto, Kawhi Leonard finished at number 18 in only 60 games. So as you grade this out and say, okay, well, you know, what if he only misses the back-to-backs? That puts him at about 69 or 70 games most seasons. Teams have about a dozen of them. I think the Clippers had 13 this year. I'd Probably should have looked that up before the podcast, but you can check it out. Regardless, it's within a game or two of that. Missing an additional nine dropped him into the middle of the second round. But his per-game output is so enormous every year. Remember last year he was number seven on a per-game basis as well. Every game he plays basically moves him up a slot. You can think of it that way. If he played 61 games instead of 60, he'd probably been number 17. If he played 62, well, let's say 63 games instead of 60, he likely would have jumped all the way to about number 14. 
put another two games under his belt, call it 65 games, he would have been a first-rounder. And so maybe that's your target there. And I think that's what, I believe that's the number we were throwing out at the beginning of the year. So say he misses his 13 back-to-backs, another four or five games. That puts him right around the turn with upside because Paul George was missing time to start the year. That was the upside with the Clippers. He was going to be sort of the lone horse at the front of this machine. And he took an extra shot per game with the Clippers that he wasn't taking in Toronto. He's 20 shots per instead of 19. And he was facilitating far more with the Clippers, where the Raptors had Freddie Van Vliet coming off the bench and Kyle Lowry as the starting point guard last year. They had plenty of distributors on that team. Clippers, starting unit, he was the distributor, not Patrick Beverly. I mean, he got his four, five, six assists most nights, just kind of being on the floor, Beverly, that is. But Lou Williams was off the bench as the other distributor. And Paul George, well, he just wasn't healthy. So first lesson here in all of this insanity is that you always want to weigh out expectations. What is the upside? Is a guy of value where he's getting drafted? And for Kawhi Leonard, drafting him around the turn, you had a really, really, you had almost a guaranteed top 18. Because looking at last year was about as bad as it could get from a games played standpoint, barring a season-long thing. So you're, you're, you are putting that on the line. But I don't think the Clippers were bringing him in with George to try to win a championship and expecting him to miss the entire season. They were going to manage him, and they felt good about it. So we did as well. And all the reports coming out of training camp were positive. If you can take anything away from the report that, oh, we're thinking about playing him in back-to-backs, it's basically just the Clippers saying, yeah, you know, he's good. Like, he's healthy. We're not going to play him in back-to-backs. But the fact that we're even thinking about it means he's good to go. The problem with the Kawhi Leonard pick is, what if it goes south? Your season's ruined. Your season's ruined. We took a calculated gamble this year. I drafted him in a bunch of places around 10, 11, or 12. I think I had three Kawhi Leonards in some of my money leagues. I traded him away in one, but that wasn't because I didn't like him. It was because I needed a guy with a different stat set. Regardless, it ended up being a really nice one. He had a great year, better than expected on a per-game basis even. And then on the totals, he was right around what we were shooting for. And so it ended up as a really nice year, number six by totals overall. And we'll make the same assessment next year with presumably a healthy Paul George in the mix. Paul George. And there are lessons to be taken away from this one. Paul George is number 30 on a per-game basis, and worse than that by totals. He played in only 42 of the Clippers' games to this point, missing about 20 or about a third of their games. Missed a few weeks leading up to the season. And you guys know exactly what I'm going to say on this front. There are no surprises. Don't draft guys injured coming into the year without an exact timetable for return. Oh, I'll be back in the first two, three, four weeks. Uh, Nah. Nah. Because what you've done there already, and it's a similar thing to the load management stuff, is you wipe out X number of games. The reason I, I I would prefer load management is that that can be tweaked over the course of a year. If a guy on load management is going great, they're just going to keep it up and it keeps him healthy. Someone like a Paul George, you're likely in that case going to see load management on top of the games he's missing to start the season. 
So you wipe out, what, three weeks? Nine, ten games right out of the chute. Wipe out at least another five or six of just scheduled rest days. And if anything else goes wrong, this guy's missing 20-plus games. And this will happen all across the board. Victor Oladipo came back later than expected. It always goes this way. Don't draft injured guys. It's so easy to get pulled in by the allure of a deeper draft number. Paul George was getting drafted in the middle of the late second round, and you're like, wow, this is a guy that healthy last year was a mid-first-round guy. Can I, can I stick this out for three or four weeks? And you know I'm talking Roto right now. The answer is almost always no. It just doesn't pay. They're not the same even when they come back. Because guys that miss the beginning of the year, it's usually because of giant things going on. Paul George had surgery on both shoulders. You knew he wasn't going to be the same. Sure, he ended up with a fine season on a per-game basis, 21-6-4. Steals were down 43%. He's always not a big you know, field goal percent guy because he takes all those three-pointers. I mean, he, he barely got back to being himself at any point this year. Top 30 is even worse than most folks expected. I think once, once he got going, most of us thought he would be at least inside the second round. Don't draft injured guys. Unless it's a little... I mean, okay, look. We'll make our exceptions. Don't draft guys with week-to-week injuries to start the year or worse. It just doesn't pay. I don't even really want to talk about Marcus Morris because he did most of his damage with the Knicks. We'll talk about him uh, when we cover New York in, in a couple of weeks on this deal. I want to talk uh, Lou Williams, Montrez Harrell, Patrick Beverly, and Evita Zubots. And we won't spend quite as much time on each of those guys as we did on Kawhi Leonard and Paul George, but they each diver- deserve some of our attention. Lou Williams, 19 points, three boards, six assists. If you just heard that, you'd think, oh, well, that's not bad. But he finishes number 150 on a per-game basis in 9-cat. A little bit higher than that. Totals played in 60 of their games, so a good number on the durability uh, scale. Not a massive three-point shooter. I think a lot of people get wrong data on that front. Field goal percent is always going to be very low. He's a high-volume, good free-throw percentage guy. That's the spot where he often excels. But high turnovers, no defensive stats. He's one of those guys that is a much better player in more points-leaguey type formats and gets a huge overrated note in category leagues because he scores and passes. 19.6 assists sounds great. And 86% high-volume free-throw shooting, right? That all sounds really good. You got three good categories, and you think, wow, we're on pace to do some damage here. But the problem is the other six range from pretty awful to passable. Not one of them is good. 1.83 pointers is about as close as any of the other categories get to good. That's like just above league average, and that's when you include big men as well. So for small guys, I'm putting that as a net negative, actually. And then the other stuff is all just bad. And he played 30 minutes a game. It's not like he didn't have opportunity, and Paul George missed a ton of time. He had chances, but he needs to be colossal volume to hit his mark in ADP, and it wasn't there. So the lesson here is, number one, don't overrate a couple of statistical categories unless you're in a specific format or you're in a kind of a particular punt build. And number two, you just knew that with Kawhi and Paul George coming to town, it was going to be a different monster. 
Montrez Harrell is kind of an interesting, weird little side study. He was number 97 on a per-game basis, so still very much a 9-category, 12-team asset. Not a waiver-wire guy, the way that Lou Williams kind of ended up being. Montrez played in 63 games, played 28 minutes a night, so all that stuff looks really good on paper. 18.5 points, 7 boards, 1.7 combined defense, defensive stats, decent volume, 58% from the field. A lot of that stuff is pretty good. The problem with Montrez this year is that even high volume 58% was actually kind of a step back for him. The free throws hurt, high volume 66%. And where we really needed him to take that large step forward, it didn't really happen, which is sort of a weird thing to say. I know, because by all accounts, this was, in most statistical metrics, his best season to date. His fifth year in the NBA, his best season. Highest minutes, highest scoring, best rebounding. But, actually his best free throw shooting year as well, by a little bit. Splitting hairs there. But, field goal percent was down, lowest of his career, because the volume was much higher, which you take, you know. Last year he was 61% on 11 shots, this year he was 58% on 13, so there really isn't that big of a flop there. The free throw thing was, was a big deal. Uh, the fact that he's taking so many of them hurts. And then, just getting tuckered out. And the defensive stats went from 2.2 combined down to 1.7. That's half a defensive stat a game. That's a big deal. What do we make of this going forward? Well, who knows? Do we know if his role is going to be the same next year? I don't think we, we can make that assessment right now. But one thing to keep in mind is that it's very, very hard to be a top-tier fantasy guy when you have one giant hole in your game. And for Montrez, it's free-throw shooting. As he's being asked to do more, the defensive stats come down. I think he's still a safe kind of late second, early third type of center on your team. But I wouldn't go reaching for him. Especially not with this team. If they are healthy next year, his opportunities are just going to get smaller. And finally, Patrick Beverly, who you guys know I adore. But just... And, and this crop, it, it, this happens with him all the time. And for one season, it sort of didn't really happen, which isn't entirely true. Last year, he played 78 games, which is great. Career high for Beverly last season. Previous high was 71 back in 2015 with Houston. We've said this on the podcast probably 10 times, and I'll say it again. I love his fantasy game. He's a cockeyed point guard in that he's a great rebounder from the point guard position. He gets you half a block a game. The steals are always pretty good with Bev. You know, he's had, he's had a season where he had over two defensive stats a game. That's hard from a point guard spot because that means you basically need to be blocking some shots. Doesn't score much, but he'll get you threes, rebounds, assists, steals, blocks, I love that. I love his weird backwards fantasy game. Problem was, and it always has been, he plays so damn hard, he plays himself into injuries. Happens every year, almost. My hope was that last year, by keeping his minutes in the 27 range, the Clippers sort of found a sweet spot for him that would keep him from being dinged up all year long. And no, as it turned out, last year was a little bit more of an anomaly. So I think I need to learn this lesson maybe better than even any of you guys. That is... Don't fall in love with a player who can't stay healthy. B. 
because of how he plays. It's not it's not like Gallinari, who was always turning an ankle and then missing a month. Gallo doesn't even jump. How is he turning his ankle all the time? With Beverly, we know exactly how he's getting hurt. His groin, his knees, his ankles, his whatever. It's because he's going 180 miles an hour on defense every single play. He plays himself in injuries. It's what we talked about with the Celtics three years ago. They were being slighted, and so they just all played so bleeping hard that almost everyone on the team ended up missing 10 to 15 games from just nagging injuries they played themselves into. There is mounting evidence. I think there's enough to just make the blanket statement that the guys that just play so hard every night, if they're not a freak, if they're not a healing freak, they're like Wolverine, the X-Man out there, they're going to miss time. Even Russell Westbrook is getting scheduled days off because that's his style too. Motor, 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 all the time. They just get hurt. Beverly is that shimmering example. So from a head-to-head standpoint, I almost don't know that you can draft him. Uh, Roto, you, you sort of take what you can get. And then the problem certainly late in the year is that the Clippers, I think, were worried about his health and worried about having an extra little bit of offense. And they brought in Reggie Jackson after being waived. And he took even a little bit more away from Pat Beverly. So... I'm probably not drafting him next year if the Clippers have this same level of depth. If some of the pieces are gone, whatever that might be, whatever that entails, whatever they might move in the offseason, whenever the offseason is, then I might rethink that. Uh, But even as a last-round guy, there's just there's minimal upside for him when guys are taking minutes from him and his minutes are trending down. You know, he's up around 30 for large parts of the year, and then he was... Down in the mid to low 20s, there's just not enough there for someone who's not a high-usage guy. And the last name on the Clippers I want to talk about is Ivica Zubats, because how many times this year do we think, eh, is he about ready to... No. Is he getting closer? No. He played 18 minutes a game. He was number 171 in nine category leagues this year. Uh, durable when you only play 18 minutes a night. Yeah, but 8.7 boards and one block. Clippers Twitter... Freaking loves Ivica Zubats. I watch him, and he's fine. I mean, he he's a good roll man off pick and roll, so that's that's a thing. Like, not everybody, not every big man in the NBA is a good roller. He's a thick, wide-bodied fella, so, you know, screen set, good roll man, and he's going to get clean looks in front of the rim from folks that can pass to him. Easy enough. Problem is, there just aren't enough center minutes on this team. And I don't see that changing anytime soon. Even if they move Montrez Harrell, they're probably bringing in another center. So two things can be true. The Lakers were idiots to trade him away from uh, Mike Muscala, who they had no intention of signing. That was a terrible trade. And if they weren't going to bring back Zubats, they should have, I don't know, tried to get an asset for him. And at the same time, he's also not that good. He's fine. He's NBA fine. It's fantastic if you put him against guys that aren't in the NBA. But he's NBA fine. I don't think he's ever going to find a place that's going to give him 25 to 30 minutes a game because defensively, he's you know he's a better rim protector than Montrez Harrell, but that's not saying a whole lot. He's just a bigger guy. He has shortcomings in his game that maybe they get worked out over the years. He's still pretty damn young. But right now, he's NBA fine. 
Twitter is so is so magical. Everybody either hates a guy or loves a guy. The the reality for guys like Zubots is somewhere in between. So no, you're not drafting him next year either. Uh, he was a specialist this year. If you needed rebounds and field goal percent. And that's probably where you're sticking. If somehow, and we've said this on the pod before, if somehow he he weaves his way to a place that gives him 22 or more minutes a game, you're talking about a guy that could probably creep up on that 125 mark. 25 minutes, he's inside the top 100, and then he's worth drafting. But I don't think we're getting there next year. Tough to know, because next season might not start for eight months from now. And that's why this is really, again, really a postmortem slash season so far, and less of a, what are these guys going to do next season? So a lot of lessons to take away from the Clippers on the year. But the biggest one, if I had to pick of any, don't draft an injured player. Just don't do it. Save yourself the heartache. That's your Tuesday NBA uh, breakdown, your Fantasy NBA Today episode. The Clippers will continue our tour of the Pacific Division on tomorrow's Wednesday edition. Again, uh, at some point during this quarantine, we're going to get some guests on here. We'll do some actual uh, lessons from the year. But until that time, we'll just keep plodding our way through the teams and uh, hope we'll get some new good news on the sports front writ large at some point soon. I'm Dan Vespers, at Dan Vespers on Twitter. Thanks for listening, everybody. Hope this was a good break in your normal daily routine, which I know has been completely obliterated by what's going on. Craziness in the world. Stay safe, everybody. We'll talk to you tomorrow. So long. This has been a Hoop Bowl presentation.